Welcome to Well and Good, a podcast about all things health and safety in the workplace. Brought to you by Skin Patrol, Australia's leading mobile skin cancer clinic. For more information, visit skinpatrol.com.au. Thanks for joining us. And today I am joined by Dr. Alan Hampson, who is uh, broadly acclaimed to be Australia's most influential flu expert. Is that a fair summation, Alan? I might be a bit overstated, I think, but uh, uh, certainly I've been involved in flu for many, many years at, at, at a whole lot of different levels, laboratory, research, vaccine development and public health. So let's dispel a couple of common myths in workplaces. First of all, some people might be sitting there thinking, well, we've run our flu shots, so there's really, we've done everything we can. So explain to me, firstly, what percentage of Australians typically will get a flu shot and therefore, and, and, and what does it mean between when we run flu shots and when the flu season is and why does that create a problem uh, in the workplace and more broadly in the community? Well, I think the normal healthy working adult um, is less likely to be vaccinated than other people in the community. The most likely to be vaccinated are the older adults and we get about 70 or 80% of them in, uh, now vaccinated every year after many years of campaigning. People in high-risk groups who are supposed to be vaccinated every year, we think probably about 40% of them at most are currently vaccinated. And then the rest of the population is probably down to you know, 15 20% vaccinated. So in a workplace, you're likely to have very largely an unvaccinated population. I've read somewhere that a typical workplace flu program or vaccine program, you'll get around 30% of people taking up a flu shot. So I guess if you've run a flu vaccine program, for 30 people for every 100 will have been vaccinated. And if you didn't run a program, then you're looking, as you say, more around 10, 15%. That leaves a lot of people who are vulnerable to get the flu during flu season, obviously. Tell us a little bit about if you do get a flu shot, can you still get the flu? You can. Um, not everybody's going to be fully protected. Um, there's been big surveys, lots of debate about just how effective it is, and it depends how you measure it, how you measure the outcome. On some studies that have looked very, very hard uh, at groups of people who have been vaccinated compared with those who are not, we think there's around 70% full protection against uh, influenza. Now, the younger your age group, uh, the better the protection is going to be. A lot of older people have poor immune systems and people who are at risk often have poor immune systems, so they're less likely to be protected. Uh, children, we're seeing uh, results of around maybe 70, 80, 90% protection amongst children. So it's, it's certainly not absolute. But in any given environment, the more people you vaccinate, the less chance you've got of the disease spreading within that environment. So there's no question, there's lots of research that's been done around return on investment for corporates. Running flu vaccine programs is a valuable exercise. And it, even if some people may not get a flu vaccine at work, they may be prompted to go and get one out of work. So we're certainly not saying don't run a flu vaccine program. But I guess one thing we are saying is be aware if you have run a flu vaccine program and let's say you have 100 staff, 70 may not have got a vaccine, and of the 30 that did, there will be a percentage of those that may be not 100% protected. So you might be looking at 80% of people who potentially might, could get the flu this year or are at risk of getting the flu. 
That's true. And, and because of that, uh, we advocate a whole lot of other measures that uh, should happen in workplaces, that uh, people have to understand how influenza is spread. It's not only spread by the coughing, which is the main thing that happens with people who've got flu. Typically, uh, you will have a cough that produces little aerosols. You might have a bit of a sneeze uh, that produces aerosols. They stay in the air for a little while. People can breathe them in. And they don't travel very far. I think the World Health Organization usually says one to two metres. But you can't take much comfort from that within a workplace because a lot of the transmission actually occurs off solid surfaces. People cough droplets that will land on surfaces or they contaminate their hands when they're coughing into their hands or blowing their nose. And then they'll go and touch objects. So objects like photocopiers, Telephones, Yeah, keyboards, all of those sort of things, even door handles. And the virus will stay there alive for many hours, sometimes up to six or eight hours. And people are walking around in an office, they're mobile, and they can be spreading it around far and wide uh, in that that way. And somebody else comes along, touches the surface, goes and eats his lunch without washing his hand or rubs his eyes or around his face and picks up the virus in that way. So... These are things you also have to be aware of uh, during the flu season. Not only influenza, but other respiratory viruses as well. Hand cleanliness is important. Keeping keyboards clean. I, I'll bet in most cases nobody runs a, a disinfectant wipe over a keyboard or a telephone. And so you, you know, you're spreading the virus around uh, in this way. So, so it's a bad flu season. We've got lots of unprotected people. What are some, you've just mentioned one, and that's providing antibacterial wipes for keyboards and in other high traffic areas. What are a few other tricks? If you were a a large employer, what are some things that you'd be doing, Alan, to protect your workplace and your workers from from work-related transmission? I would certainly be encouraging people who had what we define as influenza-like illness, typical flu symptoms, to stay away until they'd overcome that. There's a great tendency for what we call presenteeism in Australia. People still come to work. The ISG ran a survey a couple of years back, and that survey showed us that up to 90% of Australians admitted to going to work while they had these typical flu symptoms. And the typical flu symptoms are things like a fever, muscular aches and pains, headaches. Sorry to interrupt, but do you think part of the problem is around education and people not being aware of what the flu symptoms are and then mistaking it for perhaps a common cold or just a general malaise? Uh, Look, I think the confusion of symptoms goes both ways. You can have uh, mild flu symptoms or you can have severe flu symptoms. There's no doubt about that. And on rare occasions, people can be infected and really not know it. On the other hand, lots of people have uh, an upper respiratory illness, a common cold, which they really put down to being a touch of the flu. And it certainly looks better on a uh, a leave certificate, a sick leave certificate. Can you get a touch of the flu? That's an interesting question. Do you have the flu? Is it binary? You either have the flu or you don't. Are there bad, are there bad flus? And It's not like pregnancy. You right. either are or aren't, but it's graded. You could have the flu, but the symptoms can vary. Right. Uh, but if you've got the full-blown symptoms and that's a, a fever and muscular aches and pains and the cough and the like, then you should certainly be away from work. 
and you should be encouraged to be away from work and you shouldn't be encouraged uh, to be uh, at work and soldiering on as we're often encouraged to do by uh, companies that sell analgesics that, that will dampen down the symptoms uh, and that's all they do though those analgesics they just dampen the symptoms they make you feel better you think you're still bulletproof it's kind of like being driving home drunk and taking a uh, taking an energy drink or something thinking that's going to help you well that's an interesting one because uh, one of the interesting things in industry uh, are some studies that were done many years ago which showed that um, if people did suffer influenza and influenza-like illnesses, other flu-like illnesses, their reaction times were reduced. There was, uh, I think it was Lloyd's Insurance Company, did a, uh, a test on driving simulators, hazard simulators, and they found that people's reaction times went down by 10 or 20% right. when they had a respiratory illness. And in fact, it was the equivalent to having a double scotch. Uh, and <laughs> or a triple the, scotch. Well, possibly, but uh, certainly uh, in the workplace, you know, people's reaction times are dulled because they've got uh, a respiratory infection. I mean, you know, a crane driver, a forklift driver, or even a... a, Bus driver, tram driver. Yeah, all of those. Or people actually, accountants who are sort of, you know, not on the ball Mm. can make mistakes and that can cost uh, industry. So what you're saying is if you're you're on a murder rap and you're in court and your lawyer's got the flu, (laughs) see if you can get an adjournment for the day. I would do that, definitely. (laughs) Um, it's an interesting point you bring up around presenteeism. Have there been any studies to indicate how many people one flu-affected person could potentially pass it on to? There have been studies which show that uh, this could uh, result in uh, maybe 15 20% or more of your uh, staff in a in particular environment becoming infected. and so uh, From one person? Yeah. Wow. And so that, that is a real issue. But, of course, it becomes cumulative. That one person in the first instance may only infect two or three around him, but then they're going to pass it on to others. And the, the real problem with influenza is once you get to that two or three others, with influenza, you can actually be spreading the infection before you become clinically ill, before you are sufficiently clinically ill to recognise that you actually have any infection. And this can happen for about 12 or 24 hours before you uh, start to get the fever and the aches and pains and the shakes and things that come with it. So this is one of the great survival advantages of influenza. It can actually be spread by people before they be... Before you, when you're asymptomatic. And so once it's introduced into a work environment, you don't know who's been exposed. And they don't know they've been exposed until they start to feel ill. But by then, they've probably passed it on to other people. So it's, it is genuinely like the movie Outbreak or Contagion. It is, yeah. yeah. It's hard to stop. Just not scary monkeys floating around. <laughs> so, okay, so let's, let's go back and recap. The key things that a, an employer can do in the workplace is, one, raise awareness of what the symptoms are and bring it to people's attention. Two, provide sanitary wipes and promote hand washing and hand cleanliness. And then three, which we haven't touched on, is how important is it to assist staff 
to get appropriate treatment and what treatment is available to people who have the symptoms and how does that work in terms of recuperation? There are antiviral drugs too at the moment on the market in Australia that uh, can shorten the period of time for which people are ill. It's not dramatic, it shortens it by maybe a couple of days, but it will stop some people from going on to much more severe illness. The the, the problems are that it is expensive and you have to administer it within the first 48 hours. And The first 48 hours of symptoms, of onset symptoms, of symptoms? Yeah, and it is prescription. They are prescription drugs. So you can't just buy them over the counter as you might in some other countries such as New Zealand and there's been a move uh, to try and have that happen in Australia but uh, it's not been successful to date. So providing staff with access to a doctor online where they're not able to get to their doctor in a, in a fast time frame is something which could be very beneficial, do you think? It could be beneficial. You have to work out whether it's cost effective, uh, knowing that the cost is going to be about $50 or possibly a little more for each prescription. Uh, and the cost of the doctor's visit, of course, will go along with that, unless he's a bulk-billing uh, doctor. Um, but it, it is something that should be considered. And, you know, I guess some industries which really have key, really important people may be well advised to have that sort of treatment available if they've got a, a, an on-site clinic uh, and a nurse there who could possibly pass it on or a, or a resident doctor or even a visiting doctor uh, may be able to, uh, to treat uh, before they send them home mm -hmm. uh, off to bed and, and not to come back until the fever has been uh, absent for 24 hours. That, that is important, I think, with people because it does weaken you if you get influenza and you get a full-blown uh, infection with influenza, it does a number of things to you. It, it leaves your respiratory tract open to other infections. So you can get a bacterial infection. You can come down with a bacterial pneumonia. And in some cases, uh, they can be very severe. And uh, in some of the past pandemics, it's been that secondary bacterial pneumonia that's actually killed most of the people who've died. But it also reduces your immunity uh, overall, but particularly in your respiratory tract. And so it, it does leave you wide open for further infections. So when we're middle-aged and we're of working age, we, we often think that we're bulletproof. And I think it's a misconception that the flu is not that serious. Yes, you feel terrible for a few days, but you'll get over it. Tell us a little bit about how serious the flu is, particularly to those groups that are at risk and, and who falls within the at-risk category. Certainly, uh, influenza is of greatest concern to the at-risk population. That's people over the age of 65 is now um, the rated cutoff in Australia. In, in America, it went down to age 50 before they actually made it a recommendation for universal vaccination, which they have now. But they and younger people who have underlying predisposing conditions, diabetes, heart disease, respiratory disease, COPD, um, asthma, things of that nature, kidney disease, and, and pregnant women. All of those people are particularly at risk of having a nasty outcome if they do contract influenza. That's not to say that any of the younger people who don't have any of these obvious risk conditions will not have a severe uh, illness or on rare occasions may even die. People who don't come in the usual risk uh, category for for the government's uh, free influenza vaccine program are people such as the obese and we're getting in a more and more obese society 
the, the more obese you are, the more likely you are to have a nasty infection. And let's not forget obese these days. The, the, the definition of obese isn't what you may envisage in your mind, the person who weighs 400 kilos. No, 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 they're much lighter people. So it's once you get over that sort of around 28 to 30 body mass index, then uh, uh, then you're starting to get into the, into the obese area. Morbidly obese people, very much at risk. But other groups who are at risk are smokers. Your respiratory tract, if you're a smoker, is less able to clear itself. You damage the little cilia that actually sweep out the respiratory tract, so it's more more susceptible to infection with influenza and with other things. So uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking of typical workplaces and you've given lots of examples of where it's highly likely in that 100 people we talked about earlier, highly likely to be more than 10 to 15% of people who fall within that high-risk category, pregnant women, smokers, absolutely, o- obese yep. people. I mean, there's others that you mentioned as well. So I, I mean, I'm sure there's never been, well, I wouldn't think. Have you? Are you aware of any precedents where anyone has tried to take their employer to, you know, workers' compensation for contracting the flu? No, I haven't. Uh, it's an interesting question, though, and uh, it, it might be a difficult one to run through the court. But uh, there are probably people within the workplace uh, population who actually fall within the risk groups, the defined risk groups for free vaccine, but don't know that they do. They might have undiagnosed heart disease. They probably have undiagnosed diabetes. We've, you know, there's an epidemic of undiagnosed diabetes in our population these days. Well, I, yeah, I don't know whether the corporate flu vaccine providers ask people questions to determine whether or not people would be, um, I guess, able to get a free vaccine. Do you know if they do? No, I don't know. I, I think it's possibly something that should be uh, asked but uh, you know if you really want to get good coverage in your in your workplace population then those people are eligible but are not going to go to the doctor because of the inconvenience of having to get there and are willing to accept a a vaccine on site then uh, then I'd certainly be encouraging them to have their vaccine in that way. So one of my observations in the workplace and even those workplaces that have run flu vaccine programs for many years is that there's a little thing that I like to call the flu gap and that is we run all of our flu related promotion and awareness in flu vaccine season which is in April, May, maybe a little earlier and yet flu season this year isn't hitting us until you know early to mid-August so there's been many months between the flu vaccine program having come and gone and the onset of flu season and what work's been done around that flu gap, I'm sure it's something I haven't invented it, right? <laughs> uh, look, that's often the case. And and there's uh, there's often a debate about whether you uh, put back your vaccination uh, season rather than having it in March, April, you have it in April, May. They did that in America one year, six-month offset from Australia, of course, but uh, uh, they <laughs> suddenly were hit with a very early flu season and uh, they hadn't covered a lot of the population who should have been covered. And so I think they've gone back to encourage people to be vaccinated early. The real reason that they did look at this was there was a feeling that immunity might be declining by the time you actually get to the flu season. But I think that's probably not the case. And I think, you know, it's a matter of allowing sufficient time 
generally in our population to cover as many people as possible. Now, that doesn't mean you should just have one hit at the beginning in, in March or April. Uh, you maybe should consider coming back and having another hit at the population that hasn't accepted vaccine at that stage because quite often there's beginnings of things starting to happen that might make them more aware that they could benefit by vaccination. So it's worthwhile talking to your flu shot provider and ISG around what uh, programs and what tools are available to promote um, the symptoms of the flu and the care pathways that people should take, particularly during flu season. Look, it's very important that uh, that is done. The experience has been that it's not always easy to get employees in large numbers to uh, accept vaccination. And you you have to be innovative, I think. You have to provide a lot of information. You have to uh, scotch a lot of the myths and rumours that are around flu vaccine. Uh, People believe that uh, the vaccine can give them the flu. So let's talk about that. That was going to be my next (laughs) question to you. I think whenever you talk about vaccines, there's always an elephant in the room and and they are the the non-believers. And everyone has a right to determine whether or not they wish to be vaccinated. What would you say, What is the, you're a scientist, you've worked in the flu, you're an expert, you've been doing it for 20 years, what would you say to some a non-believer, um, what evidence exists to say, look, a flu shot will not give you the flu? Some people believe that you, they're injecting you with the flu and therefore you're going to get it. Yeah, what you're being injected with are little bits of dead, broken up influenza virus. So, you know, scientifically, there's absolutely no chance that it can give you the flu. Um, and we've known that uh, for many years. Um, I worked on one of the earliest vaccines that was actually produced in that way. Up until that point, we had just killed virus vaccines, and they were a bit reactive. They would give people symptoms that might seem a bit like the flu. So we started breaking the virus up, and that overcame that. So it's dramatically reduced any sort of reaction to the vaccine. So what we see... Maybe, you know, 40 or 50% of people vaccinated, I think in some cases it's been even higher, will get a sore arm. Now, it's generally just a slightly raised area and you might notice it unless you push on it or mm-hmm. roll on it in bed. Occasionally it's worse. One of my daughters had uh, quite a red area going right down to her elbow one year. Fortunately, it didn't put her off having the flu vaccine subsequently and she hasn't experienced it. It'd be a tough since. household to be an anti-vacciner, <laughs> I would have thought. It would. But apart from that, the other supposed symptoms of flu vaccine um, with a bit of headache or malaise or uh, just generally feeling off colour or other things happening to you, people have done what are called crossover placebo uh, control studies. You take a group of people and you divide them in half, give half vaccine, half uh, a saline solution, and you measure what happens with these people. And then you come back a month later and you do the opposite to the, to the groups. The group that had saline now gets vaccine. The group that had vaccine now gets saline. And again, you measure it. And these people don't know what they've had on either dose. And then you compare the results. Now, the one of the things clearly different between the two groups is sore arm. There are very minor differences between the two groups in terms of headache, any sort of fever, any sort of respiratory illness, anything of that nature. And in fact, if you do a statistical analysis, uh, it's not, uh, it's not uh, significant. There may be just a slight tendency. But 
nothing more dramatic than that except on one rare occasion in America when they were thought they were facing a pandemic, a, a virus that had come from a, a pig and got into a, an army camp. They set out to vaccinate the whole country. And they found as they went on and got up to around 50 million doses of vaccine out, they found a few people actually appeared to be presenting with a, a condition known as Guillain-Barre syndrome. It was a, a descending or ascending paralysis, which was, on the whole, it was short-lived. Uh, people mainly recovered completely satisfactorily, but they stopped the program. And they did an analysis, and it certainly seemed to be associated with the vaccine in that year. And so ever since then, that was 1976, in America and elsewhere, there's been a surveillance for this Guillain-Barre syndrome to see whether it's associated with flu vaccine. And if it is, it's not statistically significant, but there might be one case of Guillain-Barre syndrome per million vaccine doses given. In contrast to that, there have been a number of studies, including a couple of good French studies, which have looked at what happens where people have acquired Guillain-Barre syndrome from and Mainly, it comes from a bacterial infection known as Campylobacter. It gives you a nasty gut infection, particularly in Thailand and places like that. But even uh, they've shown now that uh, there's a much higher chance of gaining Guillain-Barre syndrome from a bout of influenza than there is from flu vaccination. So, in fact, the vaccine is actually protective against Guillain-Barre syndrome. So where did the flu vaccine concept come from? Was was it... Did it come from things like polio vaccines and other diseases that have been vaccinated against, or is this one of the earlier viruses that we created vaccines for? One of the earliest, and the research on this went back to the 1930s uh, when influenza virus was first able to be grown, and it was grown in eggs, chicken eggs, embryonated chicken eggs. McFarlane Burnett, one of the prominent Australian virologists and then immunologists who uh, gained a Nobel laureate for his, uh, for his work, he was one of the key people in in doing flu vaccine research. And that was back in the 30s. And there were two approaches. One was to make a living vaccine, which Burnett was trying to do. The other was to make a killed vaccine, which the Americans and the British were working on. And they showed by about the early 1940s that you could actually protect people against influenza by growing the virus, concentrating it in various ways, killing it and injecting it, and people would become immune. Those early vaccines were were quite reactive. They were quite impure and quite reactive. They were used first up in the military. And if you're in the military and you get a vaccine dose, you don't complain too much because you're on spud bashing duty or something. I thought you were going to say it was used in chemical warfare where they try and give the the opposition troops the the flu. No, but that wouldn't be a bad idea. (laughs) Could you Uh, do that, do you think? Look, there's been thoughts about uh, whether uh, influenza viruses could be used as uh, bioterrorism agents. And uh, for that reason, there's, there's concern about some of the more highly pathogenic flus that we're seeing out there in animals, birds particularly. And is that moment. where we, you know, a few years ago, there was obviously the, the swine flu and the avian flu. What, what are they? That They are flu strains that come from animals and that's unlikely to happen or no it's not unlikely to happen the 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 uh, origin of influenza viruses is that they are really a virus that's evolved in birds aquatic birds in particular 
And there are large numbers of them out there in aquatic birds that we don't know have ever been in the human population. And they can, on occasions, get into humans. Now, what we've seen... Over, and how is that? how does that transmission occur? Well, it's, uh, it's often debated, um, but now with the basis, uh, the benefit of uh, molecular genetics, we've seen that the pandemic that occurred in 1957 and the one that occurred in 1968 were viruses which uh, were a, a mixture, a genetic reassortment between a bird virus and the previous virus that had been in the human population. So genetically mixed and created a, a virus with new characteristics which our immune systems had not experienced previously and therefore all the population was highly susceptible. So what about, um, you talked about the different types of virus. Um, can you explain to us exactly what a flu vaccine is and, and how they match the vaccine with the, the types of flu viruses that are in circulation? The, uh, currently we have three families of influenza virus in the human population. Two uh, subtypes, as they're called, influenza A, is the H1N1 and H3N2, and there's influenza B. The influenza A viruses are the ones that pop up all of a sudden as a pandemic out of nowhere, as they did in in 68 and 57. And can that be in non-traditional flu seasons? It can be outside of normal flu season. And uh, these viruses seem to have a greater capacity to spread in the population because we've got no immunity against them when they're totally new. They often replace the virus, the, the A virus that's been circulating previously. But at the moment, we've got two type A viruses because that didn't happen uh, at one stage when we got a new one in. Uh, and type B, which is always with us. Type B is really just a human virus at this stage. It's not anywhere in a reservoir in birds, but there are many other types uh, in birds. And we're seeing them uh, sporadically. The uh, H5N1 virus, which has uh, popped up in Hong Kong first in 1997, disappeared for a while and then popped up about 2002, 2003 in what Thailand. What was it doing when it was on the run? It was probably tra- travelling silently in some of the birds that uh, are not really affected. But when it popped up in Hong Kong, it infected domestic poultry, in particularly in the wet markets, and they passed it on to a limited number of people who didn't pass it on but became very ill and I think 18 died. They cleaned up the wet markets. The virus was actually travelling silently throughout Asia at that stage. And then it suddenly popped up, killing poultry in large numbers in Thailand and in Vietnam, and started killing people. Again, you had to get it from the birds. You were not passing it on, except in very rare cases. Recently, and that's still with us, it's, it's, in, um, it's been in the Middle East, particularly in Egypt in recent times, still killing people, still killing off birds. Um, and we'll probably never really quite get rid of it. And the risk is that one of these days that virus will change a little bit and learn how to jump from one person to another and become a next pandemic virus. And because it's currently got about a 50 or 60% mortality rate, people are really concerned about that uh, as a possibility. That went into a lot of our pandemic planning that we've had over, over recent years. There's another one, an H7N9 virus, which is strictly in China at this stage. But that's doing the same sort of thing. 
But this one is a little different in that you can infect domestic poultry and they become silent carriers of it. So you don't even realise where it is. With the H5N1, when you see poultry flocks dying, you know you've got to be careful and you go and wipe out the rest of the poultry and clean up. The H7N9, it's, it's coming from aquatic birds, presumably in the first instance, but it gets into domestic poultry and they can spread it and you don't know that it's there. And then people have been dying from that. Again, you know, 30 or 40% mortality rate. So these are the concerns uh, in terms of planning how you would respond uh, if a pandemic does occur. So how, does, how do you determine and who determines what flu strains are represented in the flu, vir- in the flu vaccine every year? Of the, the three strains that we have at the moment, the three families of virus, these are changing all the time. The flu's a, a master of change. Uh, the, the genes are such that they're highly mutable. They will mutate easily. The virus is such that it will readily accept mutations. Uh, it's, it's not a structure which is so highly conserved as some other viruses, such as polio, where mm. you get very little mutation. But with flu, you can get lots of mutation. And so it's changing its character all the time. About 1947, at the beginning, when the World Health Organization was just being formed, they, a group of scientists had realized that they suddenly were seeing that vaccines that had been protective when they were used in the military towards the end of the Second World War uh, were no longer protective. And they recognized that we needed to know what was happening with the changes in these viruses. So from that, the World Health Organization actually set up a worldwide surveillance network. It was built up gradually. It has now become a network of about 132 laboratories around the world. And there are now four or five central laboratories. One of them is here in Melbourne at the WHO Collaborating Centre where I was employed for many years. They actually receive viruses uh, in these main laboratories from the national laboratories around the world and analyse them and have a look and see are they changing. And if we make an antibody to this by putting it into a poor unsuspecting ferret which produced great antibodies against flu virus, you can actually analyse them and see whether the virus is changing enough to be of concern for vaccines. But you also take other measures as well. You, you take blood from people who've been vaccinated and say, does it neutralise the virus that's, that's coming along this year? And from that and the epidemiology, the things you see happening, the World Health Organisation convenes two meetings a year, uh, one in September, one in February, to actually put together all the information, analyse it, and then make a recommendation about which strain should go in the vaccine. And that's for the vaccine that's going to be available, if you like, six months down the track. So it's it's predictive and therein lies the issue with accuracy or, or variability of the vaccine. It's not an exact science, I have to agree to that. It's getting better and we've got uh, clever people doing uh, all sorts of modelling of the data to give you a, a better predictive value from it. A group at uh, one of the universities in the UK has been actually doing this mathematical modelling of the results we get in our local laboratories and then saying, okay, you know, this is the way it's going. And they can draw a sort of road map of the reactions of the virus. But we also analyse them genetically and we have a look. And, and you can put them on a family tree and you can see which way they're going. So by combination of these two things, the, the family tree 
genetically, the roadmap of what we call the antigenicity of the virus, the proteins on the surface, then we can get a reasonably good predictive value. So, so this year the flu vaccines arrived late. Was that because the boffins couldn't decide what to put in it? No, it wasn't. <laughs> it's because they did decide what to put in it. There is an issue with flu, uh, and that is that we've got this lead time. It's about six months usually to actually take a new strain of a virus or new strains and to get them into a vaccine. You've got to get a virus that's got the right pedigree. I mean, you can use laboratory viruses to do your analysis, but they don't always work uh, for producing a vaccine. They're not clean enough, if you like. They've got to be clean viruses. You've got to know how they've been derived, that they're not contaminated with anything that we don't know about. You've got to take that virus, and then you've got to make it grow uh, sufficiently well. Now, most of our vaccines are still grown in embryonated eggs, as they were back in the 1940s. Strange, you might say, but in fact, eggs are a very good way of growing influenza viruses, possibly because they start off as bird viruses somewhere mm. way back. But to grow them in cell culture, which is the way we grow other virus vaccines, has proved difficult and difficult to be economically feasible. So are you telling me there's a virus farm out there that they need to grow the stock of this stuff to be able to put into the vaccines? There are chook farms out there that are servicing the flu vaccine production right. uh, industry, absolutely. And they do it to a, uh, a specification, if and you is like. And there, is there all sorts of biosecurity around these farms to make sure that, you know, there they can't... I mean, can there be contagious outbreaks from these farms? We hope not. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think they're generally uh, pretty well... Uh, Bio-contained. In fact, most major poultry industries uh, in developed countries do have a high degree of containment. It's rare for anything to get in, and uh, but if it if things do get in, they the uh, can fox. Re- it can well not the fox. <laughs> it's the viruses that get in. Right. But uh, yes, we're still growing eggs, and you've got to make the virus grow in eggs. You've got to you've got to get it growing to a stage where a vaccine manufacturer can um, produce sufficient vaccine in required time at uh, the yield which gives them a return on investment and then you've got to do a whole lot of other things to actually standardize the vaccine last year the americans suffered a failure of their vaccine it had very low protective efficacy during their winter and i think a lot of reports in australia said well we changed our vaccine because of what we saw in america the american season didn't start until about december but the vaccine formulation decision for Australia and the rest of the Southern Hemisphere was actually made back in September and then it's converted to a a more detailed recommendation by the Australian Influenza Vaccine Committee at the beginning of October and then you've got all that work to do. We changed two strains last year, the H3N2 virus and the type B virus and they must have been a little troublesome. I'm no longer immediately involved in in the work that goes into that but clearly they were proving difficult to, to get them to grow and do all the appropriate things. So it's not so much a software upgrade as a new piece of hardware required some use, is that what you're telling me? That's right. Right. (laughs) It must be complicated. I suppose the software really is the genetics of the virus, and that does dictate what's happening with the hardware as well. Okay, I'm going to go back now just a little bit to some headline numbers around the impact of flu on workplaces. So you provided me with some statistics just generally on the population. There's 1,500 to 3,500 deaths on average a year, which is quite high. 18,000 hospitalizations. What about in the workplace? What sort of impact are we seeing in terms of absenteeism? And you mentioned presenteeism as well. 
We don't have a good handle on that, unfortunately. Um, I actually did some work with a doctor in a major instrumentality uh, in Australia many years ago, and we were tracking uh, absenteeism against the flu seasons. And, and you could see a, a very substantial rise in absenteeism when the, uh, when the flu season hit. But it wasn't actually quantitated. The absenteeism that tends to occur is has an average duration of about 4.8 days if you measure it for flu. So when you do have somebody off ill with flu, they're going to be away for about close to five days. Right. Uh, it's not you know the one or two day illness. It, it's it's a substantial illness. It, it's really difficult to quantitate it in any particular industry because it's going to vary dramatically depending on where your people are. Are they in a retail outlet mixing with the public? Are they in a confined office space? Are they outdoors working? And so the impact is going to vary, but the impact is going to be greatest where you've got most human contact occurring, and that is where you're going to get the transmission. I think people in the country tend to have less flu because they they tend to be less person-to-person contact. I mean, absenteeism, I I attended a speech recently of a very senior employee wellness advocate who works for a large telco, and one of their points around measuring return on investment when it came to workplace health initiatives was that if you're measuring uh, return on investment in terms of absenteeism, one bad flu season can ruin your numbers. So even though it's difficult to determine what the cost of absentee, uh, sorry, of the flu is, clearly it, it does have a, a major effect for, for large organisations. It does, uh, and uh, it's it's been estimated that ten to twelve percent of all absenteeisms that occur in a year, in an average year, are due to influenza. And I mean, given these days that it's so easy to work from home for most people, and employers are. Uh, are happier than ever for people to work from home. It really does talk to what you said before about if people have the flu, really encourage them to stay from home. They may happily do some work from home, but that's much better than having them at work. But as I said, they may perform at the level of a low-grade drug. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've had a few scotches. (laughs) But you did mention, you know, the one and a half to two, uh, three and a half thousand deaths a year. And, And we don't see that, obviously, as something that's terribly obvious. Those figures actually come from very detailed analysis of what happens during flu season. So we go back to the 1840s, I think it was. There was a British statistician and doctor who worked in the the government offices who looked at what was happening on death certificates uh, during various outbreaks of disease. Typhoid, you get a lot of typhoid deaths, uh, cholera, a lot of cholera deaths. When you looked at influenza... You also got a big hit of deaths uh, due to heart disease, strokes, kidney illness, diabetes, things of that nature. So it's underreported that that may be the... It's it's not obvious. It's an inapparent thing that's going on. And you say, well, you know, why are these happening? Well, influenza does its real damage in, I think, three different ways. One, directly. And it can be nasty. It can, it's usually an upper respiratory infection, become a lower respiratory infection, and that can be quite serious. Or, as I said before, it can make your respiratory tract receptive to bacterial infections, so you can then get a secondary infection, which can be the, the, the danger. But when we respond to influenza, it's an upper respiratory infect, uh, infection, but it makes you feel rotten all over. 
you get aches and pains in your legs and down oh, your miserable. back. Why? Why do you get that? It's not the virus that's travelling around your body. These are things called cytokines, which are released by the body as a defence against a viral infection. And flu is particularly good at inducing cytokines. Now, they can be good for you, but they can also be damaging. And one of the things they can do, we believe now, is they can actually cause thrombus formation, little blood clots, which can finish up in the heart or in the brain. Is that a DVT or a stroke yeah. or is that what it's causing? It's a stroke or a, or a cardiac or a myocardial infarction or it can cause shedding of the plaque from the carotid arteries, which will do the same thing. So these, these cytokines or lymphokines, um, they can be quite damaging in their own right. And when we look at the figures, we find that influenza infections do uh, result in, uh, in peaks of uh, heart attacks and strokes. And actually, if you vaccinate people who are at risk, uh, you can actually uh, reduce dramatically the number of, of myocardial infarctions and strokes that are occurring. And that's been shown uh, in a number of recent studies that, in fact, you know, as a secondary treatment for people who've got known cardiac problems, influenza vaccine is more effective than statins and, and uh, cessation of smoking and all sorts of things in terms of protecting those people from a secondary uh, MI. What work's been done around the world? So if I'm an employer and I traditionally get 20 to 30% of my staff signing up for a free flu vaccination that I kindly offer to them, what are some things that I can do to lift that participation rate? It, it is difficult, and uh, we found that in various industries, including um, health services areas where, regrettably, a lot of healthcare workers are still not vaccinated, even though they are actually in contact with high-risk people who, um, who they may uh, potentially infect. I think education is important, but it's not everything um, Ease of uh, of getting the vaccination, I think, is is one of the things that does seem to be really important. Well, you can't make it any easier than a free workplace well, flu shot. You can huh? because if you make it a one hit, uh, where they've got to queue up and they stand in a long queue, so instead of running one day, you yeah. maybe run multiple days over the course of the month. And if you do it during uh, lunch hour or something of that nature, you might make it easier for people. If you can schedule it, if you've got an on-site clinic for example, you can schedule, you know, over a long period of time and, and that will actually get you uh, uh, more people vaccinated. Well, they've also, flu vaccines have also come down in cost a lot. I saw one of the big chemist change this year was offering flu vaccines for $9.95, which is half the price it's ever been provided previously. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know that cost has been a main contributor, although when people are in in a workplace environment, I think if the employer is providing it free, I think employees generally are going to see that as a benefit. I do recall many, many years ago, a doctor that I worked with, he'd been uh, an industrial doctor in, in a uh, motor industry area, and he was encouraging them to have flu vaccination. And he actually came head on against the unions who said, you're rubbing out our employees of, of their sickies. Really? You're trying, to, you're trying to deprive them of their sickies. Now, I don't think... Well, the, so we, what he's saying is the flu is your right to be able to yeah. take a, you know, some of your sick days every year. I think so. I think they, they felt that, uh, yeah, you might be able to 
scam a sickie off here and there, but I don't think right. unions, I don't think unions do that anymore. And I think well, if you know your flu data, you can always say that I'm one of the unlucky X percent who did get a flu shot and still got sick. Yeah, you could. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to throw you out a challenge, um, we'll, and we'll wrap up after this. You've been very gracious with your time. We really thank you, and it's been very informative. If people are listening and they've got questions and they'd like to email in the questions to us, um, we can forward them on to you, and and we might be able to read some of those out and provide some answers to them. Let's say I employ you, Alan, tomorrow to be my flu specialist, and I'm you know have a large work site or a small work site it doesn't really matter. And I want to protect my workplace from the effects of the flu. What what are the things that you're going to do in your role as my flu specialist? Well, I think I'm going to make sure that I can convince your uh, employees that as many as possible should uptake the vaccine. And uh, education is important. I think you really need to be able to provide information on the benefits of uh, vaccination. Uh, you need to provide uh, them with data on the seriousness of influenza, the fact that it can be very severe, it can be fatal even in people who uh, are not in a, a known risk group. We found in one season when we had the pandemic in 2009 that it was mainly younger adults that were affected. A third of the people who finished up in ICU and a third of the people who died had no recognised risk factor. So it, by just being normal, young, healthy person, you've got to convince them that they're not bulletproof, that, that that's not going to protect them. And that education, I mean, is that, a, is that a poster on the wall? Is that accessing videos that are available through the influenza specialist group? What, what, what do you think works best in terms of educating people? Is it a combination of all of those things? I guess it depends on the type of industry you're in, whether you've got an intranet that you can use uh, for uh, educating people and actually reminding them the vaccine is going to be available. Posters are good and I think should be there and they should be placed in appropriate positions, whether you place them in the urinal or wherever. Back of the toilet the, door in the men's. In the, yeah, in the lift or yeah. where, where you place these. I think that's important, but I think it's important to get a few of your key employees well and truly educated about the, all aspects of influence. So some flu champions? They become the champions, yep. and I think they can talk to their colleagues. And, you know, if, if you've got a strong union shop, I think get the union people involved as well. Get them to understand that this is a, a real benefit to the employee as well as the employer. I think that's important that it's not just seen as something that's a benefit to the employer. Okay, so education doesn't have to cost a lot because there are lots of great resources on, on your site and, and we have one for our clients called IamTheFlu.com. Okay, so education, tick that. That's, that's going to lead up to the flu vaccine program. Are we offering a flu vaccine program? I think we should be offering a flu vaccine program and I think it should be free to the employees. I know not all the, the programs are free to the employees. I think sometimes they're, they're charged a cost, even a minimal cost, I think probably a little bit off-putting for the employer. So I think you really need to make it free, but make it easy. Yep, so you made a point about if you're, if it's possible, and it's not always possible because costs sometimes play a factor, but your point was to potentially offer various half days or, or mixing it up on, on different days of the week so that it's not just one bulk 
session where everyone's cramming in and sitting around and waiting. Absolutely. And it might sound silly, but, uh, you know, little incentives. I, I know that a lot of these uh, vaccinators actually hand out lollipops for people. Right. And, you know, you, you sort of scoff at it, but surprisingly the people always want their lollipop. Right. <laughs> you never see them turned okay. down. But you may you may think of other incentives as well. You might think of maybe some theatre tickets or something to be drawn on a raffle from uh, those employees who are vaccinated. Little things can all help uh, get more people vaccinated. But then awareness during the flu season of the things you should be doing. So what, what do we do? So we, let's say we finished our flu vaccine program. At what point do we start this awareness? And we'll talk about what that awareness looks like. Should we be keeping an eye on, on flu trends? Should we be going to the ISG website? How do we know when it's time to start talking awareness? I think going to the ISG website or going to Google flu trends, uh, any of those sort of things which give us some information, you probably have somebody in your PR group who can actually do the tracking and therefore know when it's time to alert the employees or whoever has been given the job of of trying to minimise the impact of flu within your industry. And then you roll out the hand gel. Maybe you should have the hand gel there all the time. But maybe you roll out some disinfectant wipes as well to have uh, in the office or the workplace generally. Uh, and do remind people to keep um, things clean. But also remind them, just have a note up saying, you know, are you feeling unwell? Do you have these symptoms? If you are, go home. You know, stay home until you're feeling better. And again, depending upon your budgets and how serious you are, um, potentially providing access to online doctors for uh, scripts for antivirals or at least promoting that you should be going and seeing a doctor or seeing an online doctor. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. A lot of companies have uh, doctors who are either on site or accessible to their employees and uh, uh, I think this could be very useful. It's surprising that a lot of companies don't have any medical uh, backup. They don't have They're expensive. That's, that's they are expensive. But, you know, even, even groups... I, I talked to uh, a major financial institution a number of years ago when we were talking about pandemics, and I said, you know, who does your occupational medicine? Oh, well, if we need a doctor, we just send our people down the street to, you know, there's one down a few blocks away. Well, that's all changed now because you, you can see a doctor online and I'll give a plug for a business that I know, gp to use a little app you can download on your phone and you click the, uh, open the app, there are all the appointments available, you click on the appointment, you have it on your phone wherever you want to have it. At the end of the consultation, if there's a script that's been written, you select the pharmacy you want to get it, you walk outside, you go to the pharmacy, you pick up your script, couldn't be easier. Well, that's, that's very progressive and I think that's important that people do have greater access to uh, medical care. Uh, you often hear, I mean, for example, I think it was about three years back, two of my family members who were in country New South Wales in one case and country Victoria in another came down with what to me were clearly flu-like symptoms, couldn't access a GP appointment within 48 hours. Right. Uh, so they 
were not able to get the a- antiviral. They were not able to get a prescription for it. And, and when you talk about the antiviral saving one or two days, I mean, again, if someone's going to be off work for five days and that saves one or two days, that's sort of, you know, put that into a percentage terms, it's 20 to 40% of the sick days saved. It's not an insignificant number potentially. That's true. And I think one of the issues that uh, if we tend only to look at sickness absence as a cost of the company, we're ignoring the opportunity costs that are, that are missed, the opportunity to actually be producing more of a particular product or progressing a project down a particular path. So it's hard to cost those, mm. uh, and it depends on the industry where you are. One of the studies that's written up in the literature is, is an airline company that looked at uh, uh, vaccinating its employees, its air crew, and they did it as a placebo-controlled study, and they showed 25% less absences due to respiratory illness uh, in the vaccinated group compared with the unvaccinated group. Now, you say 25%, well... Shouldn't it be 100%? No, we can't make it 100% because influenza is only responsible for a certain percentage of the respiratory illnesses that people are going to have in a year. But 25%, if you've got air crew, you know, the pilots, uh, this can make a hell of a difference. It costs a lot of money. They cost a lot of money. plane not getting off the ground because you can't get a pilot. Well, that does lead me to one last question, which even though I said my last one would be my last, but it has been on the tip of my tongue. How does a flu virus get from regional China to Australia? Is it is it thanks to Qantas? I mean, is that is that the primary well, way that it's I getting? I wouldn't blame well, just, just Qantas, Qantas no. but I, I think they come in in jumbo jets. There's right. no doubt, and you know we can see evidence of that. You see a blip quite often at the end of the uh, summer holidays in Australia, where people returning from the northern hemisphere. You see a blip of flu cases and then it tends to go down again. So is Tullamarine and Mascot, is that a flu hotspot on the Google well, map on the Google map? It could well it should be possible. It'd be interesting to look at those numbers from those postcodes. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think a lot of uh, schools where kids returning from overseas are the, probably the uh, you know, the higher uh, echelon of schools which have got uh, kids travelling to San Moritz for their win- uh, winter skiing in uh, in summer. Um they, you know, people likely to be bringing back the infections. Limited spread because the flu season, the flu season is something indefinable which allows the virus to spread, but we know that it's going to occur between late autumn and early spring. Climatic conditions, population immunity, people gathering indoors rather than outdoors, all those sort of things probably contribute. So if you bring it back into the country, in uh, summer, you will get a blip of infections, but it it only then trickles on. It doesn't right. actually it doesn't actually go out into a full blown outbreak until the weather and everything else is ready, and then it will take off. So why does it love the, Why does the flu love winter? No one knows. Well, I think we're all at our lowest ebb in winter. We right. tend to crowd indoors in winter. The cooler and humid conditions often can conducive to the virus surviving for longer periods of time a lot of things when we're in the winter period we tend to have irritation of our respiratory tracts and probably makes it more susceptible to infection i nobody's really understood it but being super fit great diet sleeping well 
eating well, does that provide you any more protection than someone who, who doesn't eat well, sleep well, etc., etc.? Like, It's not going to protect you from being infected. It might help you recover. Okay. On the other hand, being unhealthy is undoubtedly bad for you, more likely to be infected, more likely not to recover. And I'm talking about obesity, I'm talking about smoking, things of that nature, poor diet, alcoholism, all of those things. So keeping staff fit is a proactive way of uh, reducing the, the impact of flu season? Just normal fit, yes. Um, you know, if you get super, super fit athletes, we find uh, a rather ironic increase in susceptibility to things like influenza and uh, they're doing things to their bodies which suppress their immune system, respiratory immunity and the like. And so they become, instead of more resistant, they actually become more susceptible. Well, Alan, it's been a fascinating journey into the world of flu. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure. That's it for this week's episode. For show notes and additional resources, visit skinpatrol.com.au.